Friends, this morning we are continuing in our Easter series. We are turning our attention toward the cross, toward the tomb, and we are preparing our hearts to celebrate. Uh, And each week, how we are doing this is each week we are taking a character who played a major role in handing Jesus over to death. We're looking at them, how they responded to Jesus, how they rejected him, and we're asking, how does Jesus allow us, empower us to live differently? Last week, we looked at the religious leaders, and we saw that it was out of envy of Jesus' influence that they turned him over to death. And we looked at how envy can be a negative player in our life and how Jesus frees us from that. This morning, you've probably guessed it from our passage, we are looking at the infamous Judas Iscariot, um, a name that when we are thinking about naming children or naming pets, we probably never think of Judas. Um, We just don't, that just doesn't come to our mind. But we are talking about Judas, the disciple who ultimately betrays Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders. Now, we're just going to dive right in. Like I said, I hope you had your coffee this morning. We're going to dive right in. I'm going to tell you right at the front why Judas betrayed Jesus, and we're going to explore this. Judas, this is point number one, if you're taking notes. Judas betrayed Jesus because of greed. Judas betrayed Jesus because of greed. We're going to see this in our passage this morning. So let's go there. John chapter 12. We read that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's heading there for the Passover, and he stops at Bethany, and there's this dinner party going on. Um, There's this, this dinner party happens. Lazarus, who is the man that Jesus raised from the dead, is there. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are there. Jesus and his disciples are there. By the way, this is a table you want to sit at, right? You got Jesus and a guy who died and rose from the grave. I mean, this is a dinner party you want to be at. But in the middle of this party, Jesus, or excuse me, Mary... Because Jesus is there, she comes to Jesus. She brings this expensive nard ointment and anoints his feet with it. She pours it on his feet, and then she cleans his feet with her hair. She washes them. She makes them smell nice. She gives Jesus the blessing of essential oils, basically. Any essential oils people in the room? (laughs) No, seriously, though. Um, She takes upon the role of a servant. And she blesses Jesus in this very special way. And you can imagine, it says the the fragrance just kind of filled the house. So you can imagine everybody in the room is looking at this. They're kind of beholding it, celebrating it, maybe in awe of it. Enter Judas. In verse 5, he asks this question. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, At first glance, his question might seem like a fair question because 300 denarii was about a year's worth of wages. So imagine a year's worth of salary, whatever you make in a year. And at first, so like, you know, we may think, oh, actually, maybe Judas is making a good point. Rather than pouring that all on Jesus' feet, that could have been sold and given, that could have helped a lot of people in need. But that is not the point of this passage. See, John is very quick to clarify in verse six that, quote, Judas said this, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. This is interesting. We we get more insight into Judas in this passage than I think anywhere else. John goes out of his way to tell us that Judas's criticism, his concern about this money, is not genuine. He has a selfish motive. Ironically, the one who is kind of greedy, he's in charge of the money bag. But here's what Judas is thinking. Judas is thinking, if we were to sell this and take that money and give it to the poor, there might be a moment when I could take some of it for myself. 
Judas is not concerned about the poor. He's concerned about what he can get. John is going out of his way to make sure we understand that Judas was a greedy man. He liked money. He took what he wasn't supposed to, that was not his. If Judas was alive today, he would be the guy at your office who goes to the, the break room fridge and eats the food, even though you've got a note on it that says it's yours. Um, that would be Judas. Um, if Judas were in this room, he would be the one sticking his hand down in the offering box in the back while no one's looking, trying to pull something out of there. Um, and ironically, he is the one in charge of the money bag. And we get the sense from John that the other disciples, we kind of get the sense from John, there's some tension among the group. Like, they kind of know Judas is doing this. I mean, why else would John prevent us from assuming anything good about Judas? Um, We get the sense that the disciples and Judas don't necessarily get along. John wants us to see two things for sure. One, he he clarifies in verse 4 that it is Judas who will betray Jesus. And in verse 6, he makes sure we know that Judas is filled with greed. He loves money. He wants more stuff. According to John, Judas betrays Jesus because of greed. And this is affirmed by all the other Gospels. When we go to the Gospel of Matthew, this will be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But in chapter 26, verses 14 and 15, after this episode, after Jesus is anointed, Judas, it says, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas goes to the chief priest. He says, look, guys, I'll make you a deal. You're looking for this guy, Jesus. I know where he is. How much will you pay me? And I'll tell you where he is. I'll lead you right to him. And he sells out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas wanted money. Greed led him to betray Jesus. Now, even though we know that Judas was a greedy man, this betrayal is, is a complex thing, and it's, it's still a big move because, I mean, think about it. This has been Judas's teacher for two years. For him to just flip on Jesus like this is a pretty, um, is a pretty, big, th- a pretty big move. Um, and there are many theories why Judas flipped. Uh, greed is one. Some say that Judas wanted Jesus, to ri- Judas wanted Jesus to rise up and overthrow the Romans, and Jesus wasn't doing that as fast as Judas wanted to. Judas, Judas wanted him to, so Judas betrayed him to kind of force him into a corner where he would have to rise up and overthrow the Romans and call down God's wrath. Others reference passages like Luke 22, 3, which says Satan entered into Judas, like entered into him and caused him to betray Jesus, like he was a puppet. And those, to some extent, might be part of the equation, but John and the other gospel writers want us to know that it is because of greed. Greed is a major part in Judas's betrayal. In fact, I think when it says Satan entered into the heart of Judas, I think it means Satan exploited his greed. And that is what led him to betray Jesus. Satan didn't need to possess Judas and control him like a puppet. He just needed to make him greedy. I was talking with a student recently. We do youth on Wednesday nights. And I had a student ask me, Sam, why do we not... Um, see the exorcisms and the demon possessions that we see in the Bible like here today in America? Like, why is that not a common thing? And uh, it's a good question. But what I was telling them was, um, I don't think it's because Satan needs to use those kind of tactics with us. He doesn't need to scare us away from following Jesus. He just needs to make us greedy. We live in the most pro- one of the most prosperous places in the world. 
The majority of us are not living, living in poverty, so a much subtler way for Satan to make us ineffective Christians is just to make us greedy. He doesn't have to scare us away from following Jesus. He just has to fill our lives with other stuff. And that is what greed does, friends. When you think about like, what, what does greed do? What does it look like? It pushes Jesus to the side in your life. And it makes material possessions your heart's desire. You want more stuff. You want more money. You want more power, more hobbies. It's a much subtler way, but also very effective way for Satan to make us ineffective Christians with a, just a bad witness in the world. Greed. John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, if you're familiar with the Methodist church, um, he once gave a fam- famous sermon called The Use of Money. This was back in the 18th century, but it gets quoted a lot. And in this sermon, we're going to come back to these at the end of the sermon, of this sermon, but in this sermon, he gave three rules for Christians regarding wealth. Here they are. Again, we'll come back to them, so don't panic if you miss them. But number one, he said, earn all you can. Number two, save all you can. And number three, there's always three. Number three, give all you can. Earn, save, and give all you can. Now, those are good rules. We'll come back to them. But what, what I, I bring this up now because years later, Wesley was reflecting back on this sermon. And it was after kind of the Methodist church had grown a lot. There was a lot more people, so there was a lot more wealth in the denomination. And he looked back and he kind of lamented. And, I, and this is a quote from him. We don't have it on the screen, I don't think. So just listen. Uh, he, he said this about his three rules. He said, of the three rules which are laid down, you may find many that observe the first rule, namely, gain all you can, earn all you can. You may find a few that observe the second, save all you can. But how many have you found that observe the third rule, give all you can? Wesley was lamenting the fact that as he was watching more and more Christians kind of arise and be awakened and come to life in Christ, many of them were accumulating more and more without giving anymore. And church, I wonder if this is our situation today. We're two, three centuries ahead of that now, and we're more prosperous now. Is this our situation? We've got to ask this question because greed is not a sin we necessarily talk about a lot. Have you noticed that? Like, I remember growing up and the sins I was told to, like, be concerned about were, you know, lust, hate, things like that. Greed never really made the list. Um, And that's dangerous because greed can dwell in all of us like it did Judas. Judas walked with Jesus for years. And greed still took root in his life. How does greed take root in our life? Well, that's our second point this morning. Greed is a thief of worship. Greed is a thief of worship. I'm going to explain what this means. I chose this passage in John because I love how it contrasts Mary and Judas. Two people who knew Jesus, had seen his love, had seen his power, had walked with him. Yet their actions are so different. They're so different. We look at Mary, we see her in this passage. She is overcome by the presence of Jesus. Because he is there, she comes to him and she just gives what she has. She is so, and remember, he raised her brother from the dead. So she's incredibly thankful. Uh, He's there and so she just comes to him. She worships him by anointing his feet. She serves him. And one of the things I just think about is she, that oil that she used may have been 
was probably one of her most expensive possessions. And she's just like, here, Jesus, everything I have is yours. She washes his feet with her hair. And this is very interesting because Jewish women rarely unbound their hair in public. But yet she does that with Jesus. So this is a very personal thing between her and Jesus. This is not... um, This is not her just fulfilling her religious obligation to give something to Jesus. This is her worshiping Jesus. This is her giving her life to him. This is her adoring him and serving him. And friends, this is what should happen when we encounter Jesus in our our lives. When we realize that he has forgiven our sins and given us resurrection life, we should not be able to hold back. Anything in our life, we should be offering it, saying, Jesus, here, my most valuable things, do with them as you will. Mary keeps nothing back. She gives everything she can. She she sees Jesus at dinner, and she says, what can I give? How can I serve him? Her posture is a posture of worship. Now, contrast Mary with Judas, who sits back, watches, we don't hear anything about him until he decides he wants to criticize her worship. Mary, you're worshiping incorrectly. You should have sold that ointment. You wasted it. Now, we know the hidden motive behind Judas's comment. He's thinking about what he can get. He's not thinking about what he can give. He's not in a posture of worship. He's in a posture of greed. He's thinking about what can I get from this? Greed steals worship. It makes us more focused on what we can get rather than what we can give in our life. Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Romans, he he writes this letter to the Romans and he urges them. He says, and this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship, according to Paul, is offering your life, your body, everything to God holding nothing back. Greed causes us to hold back. It causes us to give parts of our life to God, but other things we hold on to. Greed steals worship. Here's what this means for you and I. Um, When you think about your life, because again, it's hard to identify greed in our own lives. If I were to ask the room right now, raise your hand if you think you're greedy. I don't know how many of us would raise our hands. Maybe some of us would. But here's here's a way you can tell. If you are holding on to something or some things back from God, meaning there are things in your life that God is not allowed to touch, uh, some money, a hobby, uh, some, some of your possessions, it's like, God, I'll give you these things, but these things don't touch. You're not allowed to touch them. If you have those things, then you're dealing with greed. You can think about it this way. If you say, God, I'm going to give you this much, but only this much, you're dealing with greed. And greed is a tragic thing because it steals our worship. And church, here's the deal. Friends, it is only when we hold nothing back from God that we are able to fully enjoy our relationship with him. I'm going to say that again, friends. Pay attention here. It is only when we hold nothing back from God in our lives that we can fully enjoy him. When Julie and I were doing premarital counseling, um, 
we did, of course, we had the conversations about, you know, how are we going to budget? How are we going to handle money? Um, how, you know, how are we going to handle raising children? Those kinds of things. But as part of our counseling, just as we were kind of moving toward marriage, we also started having these conversations where we just started um, sharing the things that we had always been scared to share with anybody in life. We started airing our dirty laundry out with each other. And it was scary and it required trust. And I mean, it, it, was, it was definitely putting ourselves out there to each other. But when we did that, when we held nothing back, we discovered a level of intimacy that didn't exist before. It's the same with our relationship with Jesus. It is only when we trust God with every piece of us, every possession, every dollar, every hobby, every thought that we can fully enjoy him and live a life of worship. Jesus, on multiple occasions, said this. He said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Not whoever gives some of his life, not whoever tithes 10%, not whoever um, helps this person. Whoever loses his life gives it all up and lays it at the feet of Jesus. He will find life. So greed threatens to steal our worship, cause us to hold back. But point number three this morning, Easter calls us out of greed. In these days leading up to Easter, we're turning our eyes toward the cross. We're looking at the cross. We're looking at Jesus' blood spilled for us. And the cross reminds us that he gave literally everything for us. Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, this will be on the screen, writes, he says, beginning in verse, this is chapter 2, verse 4 through 8, he says, Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, excuse me, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now Paul says a lot in those verses, but there's two things I want us to grab I want us to grab onto from this. First, he tells us to count others as more significant than ourselves. To not be full of greed and instead to look out for the interests of others. That's a tall order. That's not our natural bent. But Paul also says that in Christ Jesus, we have the ability to do so. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, church, then Christ has done a work in us. Like we talked about last week, he has made us new creations, as Paul says. He's given you a new heart. He's renewing your mind. You have the ability to have a mind that is for other people that counts others as more significant than yourself. That's what God is growing you into. When you put your faith in Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, he gives you a new heart and he starts renewing your mind. You are able to count others more significant than yourselves. David Platt, a pastor I really like, he's the lead pastor at McLean Bible Church out in uh, Washington, D.C. He has a great quote. He writes this in his book, Counterculture. He says, if you are a follower of Christ, 
then you are free to rest in his finished work on your behalf. And at the same time, you are free to do good work according to his will. This is the good news of the gospel. We have not just died to our sin in Christ. That is true. Praise be to God. Our sin has been taken care of. Our old self is gone. That has died with Christ, and we can rest from trying to earn our own salvation. But we have also arisen to new life. We have arisen. We are now free to work for the benefit of others. We are able to have a mind that is concerned for others more than ourself. Friends, as we transition into some application, uh, I really want to emphasize something to you. Um, posture matters. We all know that. Whether you're in a job interview or you're you know, sitting in your desk chair or you're uh, whatever you're doing, you know that posture matters. We all learn this at some point, and I want to tell you a story. Um, and you learn this in seminary when you take your preaching class. One of the things you do is you, of course, you give a sermon, and then you, it's recorded, you, then you go to the professor's office, and you sit down with the professor, and you watch it. It's honestly a painful experience, but it helps you get better, so we do it. Um, and of course, you talk about, you know, your content, you make sure it's good, um, but one of the things you look at is your posture. And you look, and you know, are you doing anything weird that's distracting? Are you um, are you just, you know, are you keeping people from hearing your message uh, by what you're doing? And I remember the first time I did my first sermon, I went to the office, sat down to watch it, and I was horrified. Because the first sermon, as I was preaching, I kept doing this little thing with my, my feet and lifting up on my podium like this. I missed it right there. For 25 minutes as I was preaching, I was doing this. And I remember sitting there in the office just going, oh, no. But then I watched my roommate's. And he also had an, an issue. When he preached, he decided to emphasize every single syllable with his hand like this for the entire 25-minute sermon. And he did it the entire thing. Can you imagine listening to a sermon like that? Would you hear anything <laughs> that I was saying? This is the point. Our professor told us, he said, your posture matters. People might miss the message that you are trying to say if your posture is not good. What we are doing with our body could have distracted someone from hearing about Jesus. Similarly, the message of Jesus can be missed by the people in your life if your posture is not good. If our posture is not one of worship, one like Mary, one of putting everything before Jesus and saying, Jesus, do with it what you will, people can miss Jesus in our life. And this is especially true when it comes to money. Application for this sermon is going to have a lot to do with money and possessions and how we handle them. So I want to go back to John Wesley's three rules. I think these are incredibly helpful for us as Christians because the reality is we all make different amount of money. We all have different situations. It's hard to give, you know, do this. But these are three rules that you can think about as you consider how should I steward my money as a Christian. The first one, earn all you can, John Wesley says. Now, John Wesley doesn't mean that we just work. He says, still rest, still enjoy your hobbies, enjoy the blessings of God, but work so that you have money to give. Second rule, he says, save all you can. And by this, he doesn't mean make a big savings account that's you know, full. He means live simpler. Save money by your lifestyle so that you can give. 
Now, that's a big thing for, for a preacher to get up and say, but here's the thing about Wesley. Wesley started out on a small salary as a student, 28 pounds. I'm not sure how much that is in today's terms in American money, but with each year, as his pay went up throughout his life, he continued to live on 28 pounds. Eventually, his pay increased to about 120 pounds, but he continued to live on 28 pounds in order to give the rest away. Live simpler so that you can give. And that is the third, the third rule. Earn all you can, save all you can, so that you can give all you can. Um, this is the reason and the meaning for the first two. We all know this. We all know that when, when we acquire more and more and more, bigger house, more stuff, more things, it leaves us with less and less time, less time, less energy, less money to love and serve others. Because we have to take care of all of our stuff. We have to steward all these things that we have. But oftentimes it takes away from giving. So this morning I want us to do two things. First, consider those rules. Reflect on those rules. But then also just reflect and do some self-examination to see if there's greed in your life. The story of Judas should make us stop and think. Because Judas walked with Jesus, yet he was overcome by greed. We need to see if there is greed in our life. And this is something that I'm going to leave um, between you and God to really kind of discern. I have some questions. I found some great questions. I'm going to read them over you right now. And I just want you to, to think about these questions. These are great questions to help diagnose uh, if you have greed in your life. If you, if you answer no to these questions that's an indicator that there might be some greed in your life. Here, here, here they are. First one. Could you live with contentment on the same income you earned five or 10 or 15 years ago or 20? Next question. Is your gut impulse when someone asks you for money or time for kingdom ministry to find a way to give? Is your gut impulse to give? Is there anything in your daily life you could go without in order to free up more money for generosity? And finally, are you willing to forego or limit time spent on a favorite hobby in order to free yourself for service in your church or another ministry? A no answer to those questions might indicate greed. So I encourage you, reflect, pray with God, spend time with God, reflect on questions like these consider is greed keeping me from a true posture of worship in my life so first reflect and second i want you to give um this is kind of a an obvious application for this message but i want you to give um as i was looking up definitions of greed this week just because i was curious there's a whole bunch of them but one i came across said this it said greed is the desire to accumulate more and more material wealth here's here's the key irrespective of need Meaning not acknowledging need, not seeing need, not knowing about need. I think one thing we do that keeps us from giving is that we sometimes ignore or we're not in tune with just the reality of the needs in our world. Um, I love what Jesus says at the end of our passage. Verse 8, he tells Judas, leave Mary alone. He defends her. Then he says, verse 8, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He said, you do not always have me because Jesus was going to die, rise, and ascend to heaven. And that's where he is now. But we still have the poor, Jesus says. 
And the, and the implication is that we are to go and take care of those in need. And friends, we live in a world that is filled with people who are hurting, who are in need. 10% of the world lives below the poverty line. There are so many needs. So to be frank, there is no reason for us to indulge our entire life and not give radically. Um, if, you're not, if we are not giving, something's wrong. And I know that some of you, you know, type A personalities, you want a number. You say, Sam, okay, give me a number. How much am I supposed to give? Is it 10%, 20%, 30%? Uh, I cannot tell you how much to give, but I can give you this quote by C.S. Lewis, which I think represents a very biblical view. It's helped me in my life. Here's what, here's what, here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. In short, no matter what you make, giving should cost you. Like Jesus emptied himself for us on the cross, we should go forth giving, emptying ourselves for others, sacrificing things that we would enjoy for others. I want to encourage you as you give to pray over it. When you give, don't treat it like a religious obligation. When you drop a check in the offering box or when you sit behind your computer screen at home computer screen, computer screen at home and click give on our website, pray over your gift. Worship with your gift. Picture Mary. She wasn't coming to Jesus and, and saying, uh, this is my duty to give this to you. She was worshiping him. Saying, Jesus, take what I have and use it for your glory. So treat giving like worship. One final thought. Posture matters, friends. Posture matters so much. Um, we do not want those in our lives who do not know Jesus to miss him in our lives. We want Jesus to be seen. You know, we just sang that song, Christ be magnified in us. We proclaimed that. One of the ways we do that is by having a posture of worship, a posture of generous giving. Think about it this way. Which one of these sounds more appealing to you? I want to give us a vision to pursue as we leave this place. Which of these sounds more appealing? A group of Christians, men and women, who live well, are nice, and give a piece of their money to the poor. Or a group of Christians, men and women, who work and save so that they can give as much as they possibly can. A group of Christians who save by giving up luxuries so that they can give more. A group of Christians who are so concerned for the poor, for those in need in our city and around the world, that they are willing to give away their wealth. Which group do you think will attract people to God, to church, to Jesus? I think it's the second group. And I want to pursue that with you. So church, let's catch that vision and let us now pray as we continue singing. Jesus, talking about money is hard because I think it often is something that 
we, including myself, um, put in a high place in our life. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength. Renew our minds so that we so that we see the need around us, so that we're concerned for the needs around us, and so that we want to give to those around us who are in need. And I know many people in this church do do that. I pray that you would continue giving them the strength to do so. And for those of us who aren't, I pray, Lord, that you would show us who you are, remind us who you are. God, you were the God who emptied yourself on the cross. You had nothing left. I pray that we would take that good news and run with it to the world. I pray that this church, these people would be known in this area for how much we give, for how much we love people around us. Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't leave here thinking that we need to do our obligation and give, but rather that we would leave this place and that we would just want to worship you by not being greedy, by sharing what you have given to us. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for you. I pray that our thanks would lead us to sacrifice. In your name I pray. Amen.